Here's to the great American settlers. The millions of you who settled for unsatisfying jobs because they pay the bills. Of course, there is something else you could do if you got something to say. Start a podcast with Spreaker from iHeart and unleash your creative freedom. Maybe even earn enough money to one day tell your old boss, Hey, I'm no settler. I'm an explorer. Spreaker.com. S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Hustle on over today. Bet MGM is pitching baseball fans a chance to swing for the fences. Register using code CHAMPION200 and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 money line wager on any Major League Baseball game and either team hits a home run, regardless of your bet's outcome. Enjoy baseball like never before with Bet MGM's daily promotions at your fingertips all season long. Download the app or go to betmgm.com and use code CHAMPION200 to win $200 when you bet $10 on an MLB. MLB game and either team hits a home run. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the King of Sportsbooks. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500. Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends Manscaped, the leaders in men's grooming. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout from manscaped.com to receive 20% off your entire order and free shipping worldwide. Join the over 2 million men trusting Manscaped with their grooming needs today and get ready for all their new products launching this year in 2022 like their body wash, 2-in-1 shampoo, conditioner, and so much more. Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. In this episode, we discuss Psycho. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. This is Anthony. And this is James. And we thought, you know, getting into the new year, let's do some classics, especially, you know, one of the greatest films of all time from one of the greatest directors of all time, Psycho. This is what people consider to be Alfred Hitchcock's best movie, his masterpiece. This came out in 1960, directed it, and it was written by Joseph Stefano, based on the book by Robert Block. This is one of my favorite movies. It is probably right up there. You could say it's the best horror film ever made. Uh, Hitchcock... I mean, ironically, this is only one of a few movies he was even nominated for for an Oscar. Nominated for five Oscars, never won an Oscar. Never won an honorary one, which is absurd. And to he think did, of. he didn't get nominated for Vertigo, and he didn't get nominated for North by Northwest, which is nuts. He, yeah, he just got the honorary Oscar, which is absurd looking back on his filmography because he's made like five of his movies are some of the best movies ever made, and both of our hundred lists of hundred movies of all time lists. We put him, uh, many of them in. I put, I think, four of his films in my I top three. 100. I think I had three. And I put Psycho in my top 25, I think. I was around there, too. But this this movie was extremely groundbreaking because this was a time in American cinema where, you know, people weren't used to seeing anything too graphic. You know, if there was death in a movie, it was mystery in New York more than graphic violence and horror. Um, horror had been done before, um, but Europeans were making more graphic films especially an earlier horror film by called Diabolique, which has um, a similar death in a, in a bathroom where uh, a woman is killed in a bathtub. But this film was extremely groundbreaking in the American cinema world because of what Hitchcock 
portrayed in this film, not just the violence and gore, but also the sexuality. You know, uh, Janet Leigh's wearing a bra in the opening scene. It's something that had never been done before in American film before. So he wanted to really push the boundaries with what filmmaking was in America. A commercialized American film. And spoiler warning, if you haven't seen Psycho, I highly recommend stopping right now going to check it out because this is one of those movies that you don't want spoiled you don't want you want to go into this blind and see the entire thing uh so go watch it then come back to the episode obviously because the tagline of this movie was the picture you must see from the beginning or not at all for no one will be seated after the start of alfred hitchcock's greatest shocker psycho this is a top-rated movie on IMDb at number 38. Again, nominated for four Oscars, didn't win any of them, unfortunately. But this, Great. like Anthony was saying, this is a revolutionary film in a lot of ways. Not just, you know, the sexual explicitness, how it opens up with that camera that's panning left and right, and then it goes into that bedroom window, and then we see a man shirtless and a woman in a bra. That really never been done before. And also the violence, the extreme violence had never been done before in terms of being someone stabbed to death in the shower. The shocking violence was new. Uh, the flushing of a toilet was the first time it's ever happened on a film, too. But that was also considered radical for commercialized film at the time as well. But besides that, you know, this movie has a great twist, but also it has a great false protagonist event where this is common nowadays. It happens a lot in TV, especially like Game of Thrones does this a lot, where you think someone's the protagonist of the film. The story is going to revolve around them. And then, boom, within a third a third into this film marion is killed and murdered and it's like almost to, to the audience it's like manipulating them and, and being creative with the storyline being like oh you thought she was the lead actor but that's what's also revolutionary is like there really is no clear-cut protagonist in this film i love how you brought that up so early because it was such a shock for audiences when they saw it because the first act of this film it is a very different movie from um after 40 minutes and on this movie is marion crane's story uh, about how, it's a really great Movie, it would make a great movie yeah. already. It's like forty-five minutes. Yeah, where she steals money from her boss, and she's on the on the lamb, and she's um, looking for a new place to hang low, and she's obviously going to start her life over. She stole in this film forty thousand dollars, which doesn't sound like a lot, but back then that was over three hundred fifty thousand dollars. So you can do quite a bit with that much money. So depending on the city you're in, yeah, and, and also <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where, depending on where you're living in LA, it's not going to buy you much. You, you can rent. <laughs> But you could throw it all at Bitcoin if you want. <laughs> Let's go. But you also, what's really fascinating, I think Marion Crane is a really great uh, character because we don't know much about her at all except for what we've, we're shown in the film. And I, I guarantee there are things that happen in her past that would cause her to make an action such as stealing $40,000 from her boss, which could get her arrested in jail for many years and her life ruined. And she's willing to risk that for just a, 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 a modestly sizable amount of money. I'm very curious what her characterization was, what led her to that moment. Well, I think it's pretty obvious why Marion steals the money. It's because her boyfriend, Sam Loomis... He she wants to marry him, but he doesn't he is hesitant to marry her because he's broke, especially from his divorce. He's paying alimony. He lives in this tiny apartment and he, he feels ashamed and he feels like he doesn't deserve Marion. But I think that she's trying to just quickly solve the problem, get this money so that her her boyfriend won't hesitate to marry her and they'll start a new life together. And it's very impulsive. It's obviously illegal and a nefarious act and a crime. However, she does before she's ex in the shower does plan on bringing it back and getting it out of this mess she's in. But there is a great moment where the private detective is talking to Sam and Lila in the hardware shop and he reveals that um, he reveals that uh, Marion did steal the money and he asks Lila is this something that 
seems like out of place for your sister to do. And Lila doesn't even answer. She hesitates. So it sounds like Lila knows that Marion is capable of something like that because she doesn't deny it that she could be capable of of this. And I think that's a really great moment to define what Marion is, who Marion is. That's a good point. Maybe it's yeah. because she's had this job. She's been straight laced for 10 years now. And now she's like, oh, okay. And like the guy, the employer says, a woman works for you for 10 years. You think you trust her and you think you know her. But then yeah. like maybe she's just the very impulsive decision. Maybe she did something when she was a teenager. You yep. know what I mean? Committed that's actually, a crime. That's actually a really good point. Now, before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast, where you get awesome some perks like our podcast schedules, personalized videos, Patreon shoutouts on the show for top tier and Godfather tier patrons, and weekly bonus episodes. You heard me right. Godfather tier is a new tier. You get extra pro- an extra bonus episode, a sticker, awesome perks. We also just launched our podcast masterclass online course. So for anyone who wants to start a podcast or improve their current podcast, our 22 chapter 46 video lesson course will give you all the secrets behind the scenes of our show. The link is podcastmasterclass.teachable.com or just go to our website, raidersofthelostpodcast.com. It's right there on the homepage. You can also see all of our sources of content, our merch, our custom movie posters. Please follow, subscribe wherever you're listening. Thank you so much for tuning in around the world. Now let's get back into Psycho because this is going to be a great episode to do. There's so much to talk about with this movie and I like how we just tease some stuff just opening up right there. But I think... It's an appetizer. I think I want to start off talking about like Hitchcock and the way this movie was made if that's cool with you. And I would love to start Specifically, with that. the secrecy behind it. You know, this is the 1950s and 60s when this movie came out in 1960. So the story and ending wasn't well known. You know, it's not like something's on social media or on the internet. Everybody knows about it. So Hitchcock, when he read the book, what he did is he bought the rights to the novel Psycho anonymously from Robert Block for only $9,000. And then he bought up as many copies of the novel as he could to keep the ending a secret from the public. And when the cast and crew began to work on the first day, they had to raise their right hands and promise not to divulge one word of the story. Alfred, Hitch- Alfred Hitchcock also withheld the ending part of the script from his cast until he actually needed to shoot that scene. That's like Christopher Nolan level secrecy. Yeah, another like Christopher Nolan-esque thing is every theater that showed Psycho had a cardboard cutout installed in the lobby of Sir Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock pointing to his wristwatch with a note saying, the manager of this theater has been instructed at the risk of his life not to admit to the theater any persons after the picture starts. Any spurious attempts to enter by side doors, fire escapes, or ventilating shafts will be met with force. The entire objective of this extraordinary policy, of course, is to help you enjoy Psycho more, Alfred Hitchcock. And un- that's amazing. And another Chris Nolan secrecy thing is he prints all of his scripts on red paper which makes it impossible to uh, scan on a computer and so photocopy. Can photocopy it. So it prevents anyone from stealing it or digitally uploading it unless you take a photo of it. That's the only way. And then, so at everyone, in terms of the ending and the twist, I'm pretty sure public consciousness, everyone knows that Norman Bates is the killer. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure I'm not sure enough young people have seen the film to know how it happens and how it's revealed in terms of it. It's a twist where he actually is uh, suffering from split personality disorder and he kills as he uh, both he has the personalities of both himself, Norman and his mother, Mrs. Bates, which takes over the body and in the mind of Norman Bates. And that's who actually does the killing in a way to prevent anyone from knowing this would happen even on set is while they were filming the the entire film in the production, Alfred Hitchcock made sure that there was a chair, like one of those canvas actor-director chairs, and it said Mrs. Bates on the back of it, and he just left it there on set every day to make people wonder, oh, what actress is playing Mrs. Bates? Or like, oh, I just must have missed them. They're around here somewhere. Exactly. So even the people on the set, they didn't know 
what the ending of the film was, what the twist was, and he actually waited until they were actually filming the ending until the actors even read those pages of the screenplay. So they themselves didn't know the ending until they were on that day of shooting. Wow, that's incredible. That, that adds so much more to Anthony Perkins' performance where like, even he doesn't know that at the end of the film it's yeah. going to be him as the killer, which is so interesting. I would say maybe he knew maybe, to maybe. inform the performance. It, oh, yeah, probably. He's got he's to know. He's yeah. the only person who can know. To, to do the voices yeah. and everything. And this movie was incredibly successful. So it cost only 800000 to make, and it earned over $50 million at the global box, box office. Alfred Hitchcock used the crew from his television television series Alfred Hitchcock Presents to save time and money, and in 1962, he exchanged the rights to the movie and his television series for a huge block of MCA stock, becoming its third largest stockholder. And wow. so he wanted to make this movie so much that he deferred his standard $250,000 salary in lieu of 60% of the movie's gross. Paramount Pictures, believing that this movie would do poorly at the box office, were like, yeah, sure, we agree <laughs> to that. His personal earnings from Psycho exceeded $15 million in 1960, adjusted for inflation, that amount would be $131 million in 2020. That he earned alone. So yeah, so it's the highest gro- It's also the highest grossing movie that he ever had in his entire career. Yeah, his movies were never box office juggernauts. They were very successful, but they were not like huge, huge movies, but obviously very respected. And that- Especially because before this story, before Psycho, he was doing a lot of pictures that had huge stars and the, and the budgets were a little more expensive. Yeah, especially like North by Northwest he did before this and that had a huge budget and it was just like a globe, not globe trotting, but country trotting adventure. Mm-hmm. So many locations, so many sets, so many actors, so many, so many cast members, just the production of that film. There's so many scenes too. Uh, it's, it's crazy how many, how much is in that movie and it's amazing that he pulled it off. But with this film, what I love about this film, which is so much different from most of Hitchcock's films, not all of them, but most of them, and the only one that you could say is similar to this is Rope, which takes place in one setting, and Rear Window, which takes place in uh, his apartment, is the scale of this movie is so small. The scope of it is really tiny. There's only a handful of sets. There's only like four main cast members, really, and technically there's only like two main leads in the movie. And and Norman is, I would you could say, is the lead of the film since he has the most amount of screen time. Does uh, he actually? I would say so because yeah. he's there for, from 40 minutes in. He's there a lot. Well, compared to yeah, Ma- Ma- Marion gets killed. She's gone a third into the film. Yeah, and then and then the other characters they're supporting for the rest of the story, but mm-hmm. they're all interacting with Norman. So he's sharing scenes with all of them, but they're not sharing scenes with him every yeah, time. I'd actually be curious to see who has the most minutes in the film. I would say I would say Norman Bates does, but that and that was it's such a refreshing thing to see for such a big film to have such a small scope. And you know, obviously, it's so iconic the house, the Bates house, and the Bates Motel. And I just really love the size of the film. You don't need this big, giant, extravagant adventure to tell. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. A great story, and he actually did this on purpose. He wanted to scale down his filmmaking. He wanted to use unknown actors. The, re- the reason why he used a television crew was because he wanted to like make it just nit- nitty-gritty, low-scale, low-budget, let's just shoot this my way. Uh, the studio didn't give me that much money, so they're not going to be that controlling of the film. Let us do our own thing. And I think that's also how we got away with so much of the extremity, ex- extremities of extreme um, images he captured on the film because they didn't invest that much. So maybe they weren't like paying too close attention to the graphic stuff. Yeah, and that's also one of the main reasons why he shot this on black and white, which is still common in 1960. But, um, I mean, he shot Rear Window in color, and that was 1954, I believe, right? Yeah. And one of the reasons, obviously, was because it was inexpensive, and you wanted to make it as inexpensive as possible. Again, this is under a million dollars for a budget for this film. He also wondered, and it was also a little too gory for the time if this was in color because of the blood, especially in the, sh- mm-hmm. in the shower scene. He also wondered, if so many bad, inexpensively black and white B movies did so well at the box office, what would happen if a really good, really good, inexpensively made black and white movie was made, and how that would do at the box office? And, and it would destroy. Obviously, a genius and knew what would happen, and it was a monster. And in terms, in terms of the low, low scale quality of the film, uh, especially the the wardrobes, he kept very minimal because oftentimes with movies. Even still nowadays, and you know, you have costume designers, and they're creating custom pieces for the actors. That's what a costume designer does, and wardrobe designer. Like they're make, they're not just like shopping at TJ Maxx or Kohl's. Like they're making the clothes. And so they have TJ Maxx in 1960, <laughs> <laughs> and they're also borrowing clothes from past films that the studio still owns. And they'll go. There's just they have giant warehouses of costumes and stuff. Mm-hmm. But half the time they're making the clothes. But in this film. He wanted he wanted the actors, especially the actresses, because actresses in his films were often wearing amazing gowns. Like they're always dressed immaculately. Like think Grace Kelly in Rear Window. Rear window. Amazing dresses and even her pajamas. And you're she, like, yeah, and she's just in Jimmy Stewart's apartment. It's like it's it's a it's a, it's just a little distracting sometimes. But she is high society in the in the city, so that makes sense for her character. But it's still very common. Like North by Northwest, the actresses are always in these big gowns, and it's great. But he wanted to scale down the wardrobe to make it more relatable for uh, female audience members to make them feel like that can relate more to Marion as a character because she's wearing something that I would wear to work. And also speaking of wardrobe, he relates the wardrobe to the characters and their motivations at different times. For example, Marion, the first time we see her, she's wearing a white bra which is where she's at her most innocent, you could say. This is before she's stolen the money. I believe her purse is even white. Yeah. And then she steals the money, and then she gets to the Bates Motel, and before she gets in the shower, she takes her shirt off, and she's wearing a black bra, and her purse is black this time. This is after she's stolen the money. So that's like a little thing where, like, white for innocence, then then dark for for an evil act or bad. Oh, and, and also, uh, speaking of Marion stealing the money, after she steals the money and she, she begins driving out of the city, she's at a, a stoplight, and... People are walking across the street on the crosswalk, and she sees her boss, who she had just left in the office, and they look at each other. He gives her a smile, like not really registering that it's her, why she's there. Oh, that's Marion. Yeah, yeah. and then he gives her like a frown, like, wait, why is she there? And then he, because she apparently went home sick. Uh, when she was really stealing the money, and then and then he walks away, and that that adds so much suspense and panic and and anxiety within her character. And then, but the most famous. Uh, you could say homage to that moment is Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino, infamous scene when Butch is driving. He just got his uh, 
uh, kangaroo. He got, got the watch off the kangaroo at home, killed Vincent, and then he's spoilers, and then he's driving, <laughs> and he's listening to that song, and he's like, I, "I'm the man." I'm like, the dangerous. And then all of a sudden, he's like singing. Then he looks ahead at the stoplight, and Marcellus Wallace is walking past him with a box of donuts. He's like, "Mother." <laughs> and then he hits him with this car. That was that moment. He was inspired by this moment in Psycho, where per, a, a important person to that character, someone they committed a crime against, sees them on the when they're crossing the crosswalk in their car. Yeah, that. So, like you said, that's a great way for building suspense for the character Marion, and also for the audience in this in the tone of the film in general. Was when Marion sees her boss at the crosswalk after she has the money. So, obviously, Hitchcock is the master of suspense, and that's a great example. Of suspense, but what other ways does Alfred Hitchcock build suspense in Psycho, which again makes it a revolutionary film? And I think the most important part of this film maybe is the music. And mm-hmm. the film starts off very strong and loud with the Psycho theme. This music was done by Bernard Herrmann. It's played entirely by string instruments throughout the entire score. And it's this music creates so much of the mood, the suspense, the looming dread coming up in the story that we don't see yet. I would say like Another film where it's it's this important to the story and the suspense is probably Jaws, where, you know, John Williams' score in Jaws is what builds the suspense in that movie, in addition to not seeing the monster. But, you know, we're not seeing the, we're not seeing the shark for the entire film, but it's really the music that John Williams created in that film that builds so much suspense. Bernard Herrmann is one of the goats of film history. Like, he... It, it's John Williams and then him. Like, he was the composer for the 50s, 60s. And he, he did many of Hitchcock's films, and he also did Cape Fear, um, in which Mark Scorsese used that same music for his adaptation. But this score is really incredible because Hitchcock originally wanted to make this film with uh, very little music, especially for the violent scenes. And he originally he filmed the shower scene, and his initially originally he wanted to keep it music-free, just uh, sound effects and foley art and just make you feel like more tangible but he and he was when he saw the dailies of it in like a first cut of the film he, he was very like unhappy and underwhelmed by the footage he had and but he he sent it to the composer bernard herman and when he when bernard herman scored it with those amazing strings that are so infamous now when hitchcock saw that with his music he he saw how powerful the scene was and how much the music really elevated the picture. Yeah, Sir Alfred Hitchcock was so pleased with the score that Bernard Herrmann wrote that he doubled the composer's salary to 34500 Hitchcock later said 33% of the effect of Psycho was due to the music. So kudos to Hitchcock for knowing where his where the most important parts of the film Taking care of his friends. Yeah. And so uh, more things about suspense that, you know, I think build so much into this film like things like the weather of Marion's journey but I think Marion's journey in general you know from when she steals the money in her apartment you know the shots of her looking at the envelope on the ground and then you know she's kind of being chased by that police officer who suspects something on going on with her and I also think the I vo- love the first act yeah it's the, great the voices inside Marion's head where she's like imagining the back and forth of like her boss then Mr. Cassidy and uh, Cassidy and her voice is going the voices of what she thinks going on in the world outside of her with the reaction to her stealing the money um, and then the the drive to eventually base motel, which she discovers. You know, I love this sequence because Alfred Hitchcock's going from day to night, and what he does through the through these shots is she's just driving through the rain. This is after she loses the tail. This is when she has the new car and everything. 
And as the day, as the exterior in the world gets darker, as the sun's going down, the rain's becoming stronger and the camera's getting closer and closer to Marion every time it cuts until the point where the camera's like right on her face. And then she finds the Bates Motel looking through the, the window of her car. And the, the windshield, you can't see you can't any, see any the rain's just covering it all. Except yeah. for the light, which eventually you start to see from Bates Motel. So little things like that build yeah. so much suspense. And I, I really- And the music, obviously. Yeah, and the, but the suspense of that journey is so well done because Hitchcock uses other characters to show how out of sorts and, and odd Marion is acting, whether it be the interaction with the cop where she wants to get away from him as soon as possible. Technically, she didn't do anything wrong, but she's acting very strangely. He, he, he has intuition that something's off about her, and the audience knows it too. Like, she's not doing a good job of playing it cool. And then she goes right to a used car shop and, and rushes the salesman to purchase a car and... He keeps commenting like this has never happened to me before. Like, and he's like, it's the first time in history that the 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 buyer actually is like hard is like uh, rushing the salesman. Like, this is this is so rare. And then the the cop is watching this happen, and you're wondering like, oh man, he's gonna catch her. He's gonna find the money in her purse. Is all the coop is the, the the jig is up. Like, it's over. But technically, like, you know, it's very realistic where she hasn't done anything wrong. She's acting very strangely. And so the cop and the salesman, they understand, like, there's something up with this lady, but they don't know quite what it is. I mean, and she even tries to drive off without her luggage and things from her previous car. So she, it's I love this entire first act of the film of Marion's journey and how just, like, out of whack she is. And back to the voices in her head where she's hearing the interactions that she believes subjectively are happening between Cassidy and her employer and everything like that. It, re it reminds me so much later on the film when we start to hear uh, Norman's mother, whether it be screaming from the, the house or in Norman's head, obviously at the end of the film, Norman's mother has, has taken over the identity of Norman. But also, before she gets to the Bates Hotel, on those shots where I'm talking about how the camera's just going closer and closer, before she gets there, there's a shot where she's looking like, does that evil spark yeah, in yeah. camera? And it's like, wait, wait, wait a second. Then you watch the end of the film, and you're like, that's the smile that Norman Bates does at the yeah. end of the movie when he's when his mother's taken over the body, full control, that evil smirk. Marion does the same kind of thing. So it's like it's sort of like Marion and Norman are, are very similar characters, but also polar opposites in a way. And it's almost like she's like entering Norman's world where now she's a criminal and she it's she, her life's getting a little darker in, as she's going on through her journey. It's as if she in, enjoyed imagining the chaos that she created. Yeah, you know what I mean. And for those, I, I I'm guessing it's possible. Those scenes could have been filmed and then Hitchcock cut them but kept the audio and used the audio for these sequences while she's driving. Maybe. I think that's a possibility where he actually did even film these scenes after her death where, before. And, there, and so we can see the other characters uh, worry about her and try to figure out where she is for a week or so. It's possible. I'd have to look at the screenplay to see if yeah. they did do that. <laughs> yeah. But I love that. I love that shot and that you brought it up because she does like the the little, slightest little smirk, like satisfaction, like, and I like that because it shows that she's not like an innocent, naive little girl. Like she is a, right now a fully fledged criminal. She's a fugitive yeah. and she's smiling about it. Yeah, you know, there's something evil behind inside Marion that you maybe, like you said earlier, alluded to where in her past maybe she did something and committed a crime and she got off at, at a young age. Maybe she did something in high school and she cleaned up her act for ten years, but now she's like back on. To that, yeah, I think there's definitely like from the way her sister reacts to the private detective, there's something in her past from that reveals like it's not surprising that she did this to her sister with from her sister's reaction. And this movie just it's so good, and the suspense is building. You know, this this fugitive on the run, 
She stops at this motel. And she thinks it's just a motel. You know, you've seen motels before. And this person, Norman, seems, you know, on the surface to be very polite, respectful. Um, it seems like Norman would never harm a fly. Like, he seems like he couldn't harm a fly. He's also handsome. So on the surface, he looks, you know, very boyish. He has very boyish qualities. His voice sounds very boyish, especially when he screams to his mother from the house. And, you know, Perkins in real life was actually extremely shy, especially in the company of women. And he actually admitted later on in life that his mother began to sexually abuse him after his father's death and that she compulsively eroticized their relationship. So I think you could probably say that Alfred Hitchcock probably took advantage of some of this internal, in, these internal demons that Perkins had in real life. Yeah, I wonder if Hitchcock knew that before he cast him. I bet he did. Maybe. It's possible. Yeah, Norman's he's very nervous. He's jittery. Um, again, he seems like he, he couldn't harm a fly until you say the wrong thing. He He's also very childlike in his mannerisms. Like, he's always eating candy. He's actually, the candy he's eating is candy, candy corn. Candy corn, right, yeah. Yeah, which I hate. I hate candy corn. I don't mind it at all. Oh, I can't stand it. It doesn't seem like food, but I'll yeah. eat it. <laughs> but he's, um, he often, like, he acts like a child in intense situations. Like, when, when Sam is pressing him or... The private detective is pressing him. He often smiles when he shouldn't be smiling or or lets out nervous laughter when he should be, like, you know, having a normal conversation. And so it, it seems as though he hasn't emotionally developed and matured enough to be, you know, a, a fully functioning adult in society. And he's definitely seems like very child, like a grown man child. Yeah, and they have an odd interaction where, you know— Norman invites her to dinner with him because she didn't want to drive to the diner, which is like 10 miles away. And he's just going to have some sandwiches. And they have that, that, that they have the sandwiches in the parlor. But there are so many things that build suspense between Norman and Marion, like leading up to her murder. And one of the odd things I think are obviously the mother in the window, the silhouette of her just looking down, and Marion notices her and asks about her. Um, Norman also chooses, he's about to pick up key three. When he's going to get her to the room, then he hesitates. Then he moves to key one with dread almost. And he smiles. And then yeah. he shows Mary in the room, room one. And he's very odd about it. He can't look at the bathroom or even say the bathroom. He just says there's there's the in there. In there. In there. There's that. He's very specific about everything in the room, but he can't even say the word bathroom. Because he's clearly got so much trauma built up with that room because of how many people he's killed in there. They have the dinner in the parlor, which at first is very awkward and so odd when Marion walks in. And for the audience to see all these taxidermy stuffed birds all over the that's walls That's when and you everything. run. Red flag. It, that's where I would run too. But, you know, <laughs> she's like very polite and, you know, she's trying to be like, yeah, a man should have a hobby even though this one's super weird, bruh. But, you know, it's not completely off-putting, I would say. Because of what she just did, she's probably not thinking in the back of her head that this guy is going to kill me. I mean, I'm a criminal on the fugitive on the run. I just need to get a good night's sleep and get the road to the get on the road in the morning. And you know, the taxidermy is a great foreshadow for what he did to his mother's body. Um, and also, there's that great moment when um, Lila enters the bedroom later in the film, and the, there's just like that that um, imprint of the mother in the bed, just like from years on her side, <laughs> just from the taxidermy mother lying in the bed. Oh my god, so amazing! But it's terrific foreshadowing, and also, it, it, I think it adds to the uh, immaturity of Norman because he says he hates the sight of beasts when they're stuffed and oftentimes when beasts are stuffed they they can have like scary faces if it's like you know uh, a bear or anything and they can be a little i remember when i was a kid i would be like a little scared of like big moose head on a wall or something but birds are much uh, more pleasant to look at they're 
they don't really um, inflict any fear on anyone. I don't think. I think that uh, they're easier to take in visually for Norman be- because he is uh, emotionally undeveloped as well. Yeah, so and- I think that that's why he stuffs birds. And the whole point of taxidermy is obviously to preserve a body of, of an animal or, in his case, his mother, which we find <laughs> out later on. So what Norman's doing is he's he's preserving the past of his mother in her body. He essentially mummifies her. It's so disturbing the first time you see it. And, you know, the taxidermy birds in the parlor create such an odd atmosphere to the film and to the character of Norman. And he's obsessed with taxidermy. He says it's more than a hobby. It, like, fills almost all of his time. And you can – that's obviously alluding to he's constantly preserving and probably having to do things to his mother's body to preserve that and keep that mummified. Um, And there's a great great shot of – uh, a close-up of Norman that he gets in this conversation where it's a profile of Norman and there's a, a large owl stuffed behind him on the wall. And I, it's just shots like that were pretty rare in American Hollywood cinema, like artistic, visually stunning f- shots like that, which show the parallel between who Norman is what he and what he does. Yeah, he, Norman's preoccupied with the past with his mother and what he's doing with the taxidermy is preserving her, you could say her soul and her essence in her bodily existence by keeping the body alive, mummified, and tending to it and interacting with it and touching it and, and talking to it. And I'm sure he visualizes that he's the body when he's speaking as his mother. Also, um, and the main motivation for stuffing her is because he couldn't live with what he did to her. And so by taking her out of the um, – by stealing her body and stuffing it, uh, he, he's keeping her alive. So that means – so it's in, in a way – he never killed her, so he doesn't have to face his crime, but rather, since mother is there in the house and he gave her a voice, now she's not dead anymore. Now there's uh, now there's like no evidence that I actually killed her, and I can live with myself after what I did. That's a great point. Mama is treating me to breakfast. Yep, let me see your phone. Huh? Look here. I download this McDonald's app because when you buy any bagel sandwich like the steak, egg, and cheese bagel, you get one free. Wait, you just bought that on my phone. That's right. Now that you got McDonald's money, you could treat mama. <laughs> okay, ma, you got it. Valid for product of equal or lesser value. Valid through 10 at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. App download and registration required. Si te cambias a Boosmobile, puedes tener el poder de un iPhone SE, lo que significa tener el poder para ver todos tus programas, bajar toda tu música, o el poder de llamar a tu ex. Deja de llamármelo, nuestro término. Mejor no llames a tu ex. Cámbiate ahora y llévate un iPhone SE por cero dólares. Todo en una de las redes 5G más grandes del país. Más poder para ahorrar. Boost Mobile. Teléfono gratuito limitado a nuevos clientes y uno por línea. Excluye impuestos. Aplica restricciones adicionales. 5G no disponible en todas partes. Ver boostmobile.com para más detalles. Y déjate llamar a tu ex. Ya no quieres saber nada de ti. Goodbye, bench press. Adiós, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. How about we... um? Take a little break from Psycho. We'll get back to the Beach Motel, but let's do a little intermission. How's that sound? Sounds great. Let's start with our movie quote competition. Mm-hmm. That is a tasty burger. <laughs> I could tell from the mm-hmm. <laughs> That's Jules in Pulp Fiction. What's in this? Sprite? Sprite's, Sprite's good. good. 
<laughs> Mind if I use some of this tasty beverage to wash, wash down, down this burger? burger. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right, I have a quote from a fan. This is from RJ. Okay. Here's your $9,000. I wouldn't cash it, though. I drew it on the account you froze. Hmm. That sounds familiar. Here's your $9,000. Don't 19,000. 19, oh, 19,000. Sorry, that changes. Can you say it now? That changes everything. <laughs> Here's your $19,000. I wouldn't cash it, though. I drew it on the account that you froze. I don't know. Wait, 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 wait. The social network. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Good one. Good one. Got it. Wow. Got him. Wow. Okay, and then I have a, another one from Britain. <laughs> this one, you're not going to get it. <laughs> Do you think God stays in heaven because he too lives in fear of what he's created here on earth? I don't know. Spy Kids too. <laughs> <laughs> That's intense. Yeah, right? That is a deep line for a kid's movie. <laughs> My God. Robert Rodriguez, don't mess around. Okay. All right, guess this movie release year. Breakfast at Tiffany's. 1964. 1961. Ah, damn. Good one. Okay, guess this movie release year. Sharknado. <laughs> 2008. 2013. Wow. Is, oh, I guess it was pretty recent. Yeah. All right. Now moving into our movie pop quiz. Who did the musical score for Spider-Man 3? Oh, shoot. Um. Oh, my God. Not Danny Elfman. Um, Danny Elfman and Sam Raimi had a falling out after two. Oh man, that's a good question. Right? Who did do it? I, had, I, I, no, never, I, I looked it up. I never listened to it. I thought of it because uh, obviously Spider Man's everywhere. But uh, I'm just gonna guess David Arnold, Christopher Young. Oh, Christopher Young. Oh, obviously he did. Drag me to hell. Why didn't I guess that? That would have been much better. Would have been a lot better if you yeah. guessed it. You yeah. probably you would have gotten it right. Possibly would have gotten it right. Yeah, yeah. it was a high probability. It would have ended up differently. For yeah. Me. <laughs> All right, here's my pop quiz question. Who was Hitchcock's male muse? Male muse? Um, Cary Grant? Jimmy Stewart? Yes, Yeah, Jimmy Stewart. He starred in four of Hitchcock's best films. Yeah, you're right. Rear Window, North by Northwest. Vertigo. Vertigo. And Rope. Oh, yeah. Would have gone better if I guessed that instead. <laughs> All right. Uh, how about we have any haters this week? Oh, yeah. We have we have a real hater. A real one. Who we got? Yeah. Let's hear it. I love the real so haters. So I posted a Raging Bull clip talking about – you and I talked about how it's probably the best sports film ever made. And then Ruthless714949 wrote, well, they admitted to copying Rocky as much as they could. And then I wrote, what? I responded, have you even seen this? Scorsese purposely made it different as different from Rocky as possible. And then he replied – he literally hired the same crew who made Rocky, maybe to prove that he could do it better. What? And then I replied again, have you seen it, though? And then he replied, yes, a long time ago, which <laughs> like, is which means no, you never, I you I never, never saw seen it. it. Or you watched like 10 minutes yeah, of it. Yeah, he's never seen it. Yeah, the guy's just lying. They couldn't be more different. He, and because you, you, you can tell he's lying because like he's, a long time ago, it's like, bro, come on. You've never seen it. Alora. And then we have some uh, unsubscribers. I posted an Inception clip talking about how Cobb, if you think about it, Cobb is like well over 100 years old in terms of his mind because he's been working in dream worlds for his career. Uh -huh. And then uh, Sneaky Soy Sauce wrote, posted this while I was napping, unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> and then our, meta. yeah, I loved it. It was great. 
our Godfather tier patron for today is Heath. He's been a fan of the show for a very long time. He's actually very funny. He registered on Patreon as Victoria Justice. <laughs> <laughs> and he used a profile photo of a supermodel. <laughs> yeah, he was like, oh, look at Victoria. <laughs> Heath, on the day of my daughter's wedding. You did it, Heath. Thank you for becoming a top tier patron. We made you an offer you couldn't refuse. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> you can act like a man. <laughs> So thanks so much, Heath. We love you, kid. All right, supporter of the week. We have a couple great five-star reviews in Apple Podcasts. The first one is from a bunch of letters in random order. Uh, I don't know what name it is. Worst podcast ever. Cool Hand Luke was in one of their top ten, and yet no episode dedicated to that masterpiece. Unsubscribe. <laughs> they wrote each one of those syllables with an explanation point. I got it. And then um, Meg Arkins, my favorite podcast. I love this podcast. I've been listening to them from the start. I listen to them whenever I go to work and listen to my favorite ones when I'm all caught up. They are hilarious and give me better insight on which movies to watch. Keep it up, guys. You're doing great. P.S. Philly is better than Boston. No what? way. I'll let it slide because you left a five-star review, but man, they do have that Super Bowl over us. Just one. Just one. Thank you so much for the for the review and tuning in every week and listening, re-listening to episodes, which is great. There is another unsubscribe that I missed that was really good. Who is uh, it? Fossil Czar in our Avatar episode wrote, you didn't know the Lord of the Rings quotes? Unsubscribed. <laughs> and he said, keep up the good work. On this day in film history, today is Monday, January 17th. Today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. In 1939, Gone with the Wind was released. In 1992, Juice was released. In 1997, Beverly Hills Ninja was released, which might be one of the funniest (laughs) movies ever made. (laughs) And happy birthday to the late Betty White, who just recently passed. Jim Carrey and Zoe Deschanel. My streaming recommendation for this episode is All is Lost. This is a Robert Ooh. Redford movie. came out not too long ago where he's lost at sea. It's excellent. Yeah, it's really great, and it has um, hardly any dialogue at all. And then my streaming recommendation is Kronos, which is Guillermo del Toro's first film. It's a terrific take on vampires. Now, to get back into Psycho, I want to talk about Norman Bates a little bit more in depth in terms of his past, because just like Marion... It's very mysterious what his past is, and we we get hints of his past. The fact that you know we can make we can take in that he murdered his his mom and his boyfriend and her boyfriend. We learn that from the psychiatrist in the end. But I also wonder did he did he murder his own father as well? Uh, it's very curious, and I I was I'm always curious like how did he murder his mom and her, and her boyfriend? And because he gets so defensive about. Um, the line where Marion says, did you ever think about sending her someplace? And he goes, some place. And he talks about how horrible, you know, a mental institution is or mental hospital is. He's clearly spent a lot of time there. He probably murdered his mom and her boyfriend when he was a teenager. And, I, and I've never seen the TV show Bates Motel, so I don't know, I what, I don't the, know what they did with I it. I think in the Bates Motel, they say that Norman killed his father protecting his mother from domestic violence. Uh-huh. Okay. But in the movie, that's well, not as fun, though. I would say, I would say Norman should just be a killer because he's a killer because of what he his has. Mother... He has serious mommy issues, and that's possibly why he killed his mom and her boyfriend because he was envious. Oh, that's one hundred percent why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He poisoned them too, so it's revealed po- in, yeah. the, in the show. So no, in the movie, he's he poisoned them. That's what the oh, psychiatrist he? says at the end of the film is Norman poisoned both his mother and her lover because Norman and his mother 
the, the psychiatrist, it's a great monologue where he explains oh, yeah. everything. This guy is, it's like, um, it's like, uh, what's his name, Alec Baldwin in the Glengarry Glen Ross yeah. when he just walks in halfway through, 20 minute monologue and yeah. just leaves. It's, it's great. So the psychiatrist, he, he's talking about how Norman and his mother, before she died, they lived together as if they were the only people that existed in the world. Now imagine you're a boy and you live with your mother in, the, in this huge ha- house, this three-story house with n- no one else. You don't act like – it's just you and two it's every day. And she's obsessively controlling over your life in every interaction. She, We can assume that maybe there was some sort of sexualization between – uh, his mother that his, that his mother may have forced onto him, but growing up and going through this in his entire uh, youth and adolescence and, and young adulthood, Norman became sexually obsessed in, with his mother. You know, has the obsessive mommy issues, which is common with serial killers: sexual yeah. obsession tied to the killings and tied to usually tied to their mother. That's usually mm-hmm. very common with a lot of serial killers. As you, we found out on on some of those those David Finch, the David Fincher Mindhunter. Yeah, and isn't it true that um, I, I believe you told me this. It wasn't in the podcast, but serial killers are for the most part made based on environment. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, usually all from sexual violence and sexual abuse at a uh, very young age. Because you you listen to true crime stuff, but I I can't do that stuff. Almost, I think pretty much outside of fictional ones, almost every serial killer was sexually abused at a uh-huh. very young age. That's usually okay. what, what they're usually created. But there so are that, a lot of there are a lot of arguments that are they made are they born or are they made? Yeah. Cuz I mean, obviously kids can be born like a little bit more temperamentally bad, but yeah. not evil. Yeah. yeah. I don't think anyone's born evil. Yeah. But um, in also the dialogue between Marion and Norman in the in the parlor during dinner, it's also very revealing to Norman and his behavior and what it was like living with his mother. And they're they're talking about traps and how you know Marion's like says she's in a trap, and this is the point where she's like, I think I'm gonna go out and get out of the trap that I just got myself in. And Norman says to her that we're all in our own traps. I was born in mine. So this line, I think, totally scratches away everything that they did in the base motel with that father storyline where it seems like as soon as Norman was born, his mother was psychotically yeah. obsessed with him and controlling of him. And that ties to why he even created the mother character in his mind because once she was gone, he couldn't bear not to have her in his world, so he recreated her. And also, like you said earlier, he couldn't bear the fact that he's the one that killed her. Yeah, he it basically resurrected her. And so, and because of his his sexual obsession with his mother and the controlling nature of his mother, every time that Norman is attracted to another woman, he kills her out of jealousy and envy of his mother's persona inside of him, which is crazy. Ready? He covets. <laughs> it's just like Silence what of the Lambs. He, he, he covets. covets. What did Mister Lecter say? He covets. <laughs> and so Norman has these two identities and personalities inside of him. He can literally either be his mother or be Norman. And no matter – and as the psychiatrist was saying that even when he is Norman, his mother is still the dominating personality between the two of them. And it's only it was only inevitable that at some point Norman's mother was going to fully take over the entire body and mind of Norman Bates. Exactly. And I think there – I was doing some research online and it seems as though there's still some confusion about – you know, Norman Bates in his condition, uh, some people I saw are still under the belief that they think that he's transgender, which is not correct at all. It's the same thing as Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. Norman Bates – Norman Bates isn't the same as Buffalo Bill, but not, Buffalo Bill isn't transgender either for both different reasons. Both films say that they're yeah. not. They explicitly yeah. say in the dialogue of yeah. the scripts of both movies that the characters are not transgender. So, so something you said earlier, people – 
uh, use the the line of Norman saying that we're born in our own traps. People look at look to that as saying um, being transgender is a trap and being no, trapped no. in your own body. But that's not what Norman is saying. He was born in the trap of his mother's bubble, and then he doesn't. He's not transgender uh, as an adult. He he has split personality disorder, and the mother personality and the normal personality are vying for control of the mind constantly. That's what he's suffering from, and that's what his condition is. He's not transgender, uh, it, but I saw there's still plenty of people saying that. Uh, I think if you look at it in the way that it was written, it's pretty clearly laid out that he has split personality yeah. disorder. Neither character, Buffalo Bill or Norman Bates, are transgender. There's nothing wrong with being transgender. These films aren't saying that people are tra- who are transgender are bad people. It's obviously yeah. not what's going on. It's explicitly stated in both films, especially the cycle, that Norman's not trans. The psychiatrist explains in the ending of the film that Norman wears his mother's clothing and pretends to be here to keep her memory alive. And when he's the persona of Norman of his mother, Mother. That's why he wears the wardrobe and the wig. And Buffalo Bill and the Science of the Lambs, both uh, Dr. Lecter explicitly says in the film that Do- Buffalo Bill is not transgender. He thinks he's transgender yeah. because it's what he covets. Yeah, and he's and he's been trying to transform her into something that he thinks his mother, Bill, Bill's mother, would approve of. Exactly. So it's very similar but not quite the same it's complex but i think yeah. if you just a lot of people when they look at the surface of things they think they they think that's the truth but it's both movies disprove that yeah. very easily and quickly and the creation of the mother the mother in his mind it was a way of like you said preserving re, basically resurrecting and preserving his mother's life as if she, he never did kill her and they their old life together is back that's what it is exactly and you know I, again, I whenever I watch this movie, I, I connect Marion and Norman more and more. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're more connected than on the surface of the film when you watch it, especially if you see it just once or twice. That could be why he's so attracted to her. And that's one of the reasons, yeah. sure, maybe. Um, but, I mean, you can even look at their names, Marion and Norman. They use a lot of the same letters that they're just rearranged, which is really interesting. But they both hear voices in their heads, which is so fascinating to me. You know, that smirk, too, where, you know, it seems like Marion's becoming a little more like Norman entering it, his world. It's almost as though she looks into the camera like he does as exactly. well. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. So they both hear voices subjectively. Marion's hearing subjective conversations that she believes are, ha- are happening about her, which I'm sure we all do. We all experience that. Well, then, yeah. Yeah, everyone imagines scenarios. And then Norman's yeah. experiencing subjective consciousness inside of him of his mother taking over his body and being being his mother at times. Yeah, and I'm, it's so fascinating to wonder how many people Norman has killed in the past because he puts the cars in that swamp, but, like, who knows how many cars are in there? Who knows how many young women? Because they do mention that there are two missing persons cases in that area. But, I mean, how? I mean, it's a motel. Plenty of people would stay in the motel over, like, a decade or so. How many of them are young women on their own who who um, Norman would be attracted to. So it's fascinating to think, like, how many cars are in that swamp. Yeah, and how how many years has his mother been dead? What, what did they say? 15. Is it 15 years? Yeah. So over the course of that time, even though no one stops at the hotel very often because they, they built the, the new highway nowhere near the Bates Motel, so maybe, maybe it's not as many as people would think. Maybe it's, like, one a year or something like that, which is still obviously – Excessive and horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Killing one person is bad. Those are rookie numbers. Those, those, those are rough them up. Rookie numbers. If there was a highway there, he would have been caught way sooner. I'm just saying. But it's it's interesting to think how many times has he done this because he's so conditioned to not look at the bathroom. He's so terrified of the bathroom, traumatized by it. Then he also has the peephole, the peeping tom hole, which is so 
disturbing to watch as he he watches Marion undress. And I believe that Alfred Hitchcock he used a specific lens, fifty millimeter, the fifty millimeter lens. Yeah. So fifty millimeter lens is um, the closest to what the natural human vision is, where it seem it feels as close to human vision as possible. So it's almost like we're a voyeur with Norman Bates at that moment. Exactly. So the fifty mil, like if you if you move it, it's like it's it's definitely if you're like you're a nearsighted person. If you walk up to someone, they'll they'll be in focus. For me, particularly within like two or three feet. And if you do the same, if you get about within that distance with the 50 millimeter, the background will be a little out of focus and the, the subject will be in focus. So it is very much similar to like a person who is nearsighted, very much in line with what their perspective of visuals is. And now speaking of cameras, I want to get into the actual production of this film and the iconic imagery that Hitchcock made in this movie. But first... We got to tell you about our sponsors. Yeah, it's 2022, everybody. And, you know, if you're living alone on the top of a hill with <laughs> a motel that no one visits, you're probably very secluded. You're going to want to actually take care of yourself for when you meet a nice Marion yourself. So <laughs> I recommend getting your act together. Just don't finally. kill her. Don't murder her. Just, you know, if you want to have sandwiches with her and cheese around your taxidermy birds, get the lawnmower 4.0 groomer from Manscaped.com using our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. You'll get 20% off and free shipping worldwide. That's 20% off your entire order from manscaped.com they're also launching a bunch of brand new products this year including their two-in-one shampoo conditioner their body wash there's some other stuff that we still can't talk about yet i can't wait to get them in but manscaped's going to basically be covering every aspect of your life in terms of grooming and just taking care of yourself on a daily basis so definitely go to manscaped.com get some of their products including their performance package 4.0 which is a great bundle of stuff use our coupon code raiders of the lost at checkout you'll get 20 percent off and free shipping worldwide and psycho just like many of alfred hitchcock's other films features some of the most uh, iconic posters of all time i have one right here vertigo saul bass designed some of his films and designed the posters and he's probably the most in the most famous uh uh, graphic designer in film history yeah, and the intros he does and stuff yeah and the best place to get posters like these hitchcock movie posters are at movieposters.com head on over to their website and use our special promo code raiders 10 to get 10 percent off your order today they have all sorts of sizes framing backlighting every hitchcock movie you want as well as every other f- film or tv show imaginable whatever your poster needs are movieposters.com can handle it again Head on over to movieposters.com and use our special promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order today. Norman Bates' mother has been dead for 10 years. You're 10 wrong. Years. I unsubscribe. <laughs> unsubscribe? <laughs> you unsubscribe from your from own you, show. From you. No, from your own show. No, just from you. Whenever you're talking, I'll turn it down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get into the production of this movie because Psycho is, is infamous for you know the shower scene, for the sexuality, for the graphic nature of it, but what's it's really revolutionary filmmaking in terms of how he captured these scenes because uh, let's let's talk about the shower scene because it's an amazing moment in film history uh, the first time I think you actually see a nude woman on film in America uh, as well as the way he he filmed this you can tell that they 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 built different sets for the scene because uh, at first it starts out as like a normal shower but definitely you can tell um, on the on the shot where Marion's inside the shower and the curtains behind her, and then you see the figure of uh, Norman Bates in the background. That's clearly like a gigantic, huge sh- um, shower curtain that they specifically made for that shot. Um, which is also you don't notice it, but it works for the scene. And also the shower head 
what Hitchcock did for there's this great POV shot of the showerhead where the camera's looking directly into the showerhead and the the streams of water are flowing around the camera lens. And the way he achieved that is he actually built a showerhead that was six foot in diameter and then put the camera like right on it so the the water streams wouldn't touch the camera because it's a gigantic showerhead. So there's just like a cone area of no moisture coming out. Exactly. All. That's crazy. So that's how they filmed that scene. And then also obviously the the actual stabbing of Marion is iconic the way he filmed it. The editing is really tremendous. Some of the best ever done. It, you feel the panic of Marion. The music ties in with the editing so well. Beautiful silhouette shots of Norman where you think it's the mother, the silhouette. You can see the eyes, but you don't see the, any detail in the face. It's so darkened. They clearly did it in post um, because the way the scene is lit, you should be able to see that face. But brilliant way of portraying the character. But then I think the most famous shot of this movie, and it's one of the best shots of all time, is the um, the shot of Marion's dead in the in the bathtub and the shower's just running because Norman has, has left. He's run out of the room, and then the water and then uh, Kitchcock uh, follows the water as it moves down the tub and begins falling into the drain and uh, pouring into the drain. And he zooms in on the drain, which is a great metaphor for you know life leaving Marion and death. And then he goes close on the drain. And it cuts to a close-up on Marion's eyeball. And her eyes open. In movies, if you have a character who's dead, it's best to keep their eyes open so the audience knows for sure they're dead. Where if you see a dead body with an eye clo- with the eyes closed, it kind of looks like, oh, are they sleeping? So when an eye is left open, frozen, it, there's no doubt that that person is dead. So it's, it's a great way to portray a dead body. But then what happens is this amazing shot where the camera rotates as it's pulling back from Marion's eyeball, which is just frozen. And then it just keeps rotating and rotating, and then it pulls back. And then um, Marion Crane, uh, Janet Lee does a great job of remaining frozen because I don't know how you could keep your eyeball static for so long. It's like 40 you, seconds. Yeah, you see it move for a moment, for a bit. Um, but the way he achieved this is because it is impossible to keep your eye frozen for that long. And there is a moment where her eye does move as the in the later half of that shot. But the way they did the first half of that shot, the rotating, is it's just a still frame. And then in post-production, they just put it on a giant reel, like easy editing, and then you, and then they just rotate it as the each frame comes out. And so it's literally like a, an effect, not done in camera, but in post-production, the way they did that rotating. Yeah. And then you can see where when the rotating stops, that's when the, the film is actually live, and you can see just the slightest movement of her eyelash, and then it's really live. The shower scene is so incredible. It might be the most famous scene in the history of cinema, in American cinema, and it's so important. But, like, you watch this, and it came out in 1960. You know, it's black and white. You don't see much blood. You don't see, like, the knife going into her body. It's not nothing that we're accustomed to today. I mean, even if, even if you watch, like, Ex Machina, you still watch somebody, like, a knife going into Nathan's body in that yeah. film, and it's disturbing. You see the blood and all the red pouring out. But, you know, this— All the red pouring All out. the red blood coming out. <laughs> but it's black and white, and it's not red. And it's just quick shots of of that he just spliced together in the most perfect way to make it. It's more disturbing, I think, than watching like that stabbing in Ex Machina or a film like that. It's, it's the editing and the music. Yeah, as well. I I squirm when I whenever I watch this scene. Yeah. I get so into it, but like, I like squirm and like get like sick to my stomach watching it. That's how disturbing it is. Still, even though it was made in 1960, and they use they use chocolate syrup for the blood because they filmed it in black and white, and the and the the chocolate looked better as fake blood but like you said you see the nat the, the knife hitting her but it just like s- slides down her body yeah and it, these are just like half second shots but so when it's cut together and when you're flip-flopping from subject to subject 
Uh, it's very um, chaotic, and you would believe every moment of it. And that, in 1960, no one ever seen anything like this. Nothing. They'd never seen anything like this, even just with the opening with the sexually explicit content and the and the wardrobe they were wearing. That that shocked them, too. It seemed like Hitchcock's just like messing with the audience and testing the waters of what can I do in a movie for it to just stay heart rated R and not get it banned by the... Uh, and, and what's it called? NCAA. Wait, no. <clears throat> NCAA. MPAA. MPAA. Which wasn't established back then. Or whatever. They had some sort of um, rating, uh, system. rating system back then. But movie ratings, it was so stringent and strict on what you could do, even just like mor- morality. You couldn't do something that was morally wrong in a lot of films. They would give you, they wouldn't let you do it in, in cinema and in stories. I think only Hitchcock could have gotten away with it because of his name recognition and his brand. Mm-hmm. I think if it was like a relatively unknown filmmaker or new director, the studio wouldn't have let it happen. But because it was Hitchcock, and this is like peak Hitchcock where, you know, he's more famous than the movies that he comes out with. Like his name comes before the title of the film. It's Yeah, it's, it reminds me of Orson Welles where Orson Welles, he didn't care so much about making as much money off his movies as possible. What he cared most about was artistic freedom. And you could probably say he's the first director ever to get complete artistic and creative control over his movies. That was like a deal, an unheard of contract and deal that Orson Welles worked out. And, you know, he probably laid the groundwork of, of things that like Hitchcock eventually did. That's because of his uh, radio play, The World of the Worlds. It became, it was such a big hit that the studio was like, signed him and were, were like, make whatever you want. Well, And obviously Citizen Kane was such yeah. a huge hit. But that's how he made Citizen Kane mm-hmm. with such freedom because the studio was so like, Desperate to just have him do anything, yeah, make a movie. Yeah. You're probably right. Oh yeah, but also, I think I think the most shocking um, shot of this movie for you know for films la- for film audiences back then is the the overhead um, God's eye shot of Marion when she's dead in the tub, just hanging outside the tub. Yeah, and uh, Janet Lee actually used a body double because she didn't want to be naked on film. But I think it's the first time that you saw like a fully naked woman on screen. Um, they, they it, she's on, she's on her, she's like facing the tub and her back's to the ceiling, and she's like her knees are bent, so you don't see um, anything too revealing. But just showing a nude corpse of that had never been done in America before. I think that's the the most uh, difficult shot that Hitchcock got approved by the studio. I would say. Yeah, probably. I can imagine that. But I love this sequence because, you know, we're only 45 minutes into this movie, something like that, and the main character's dead. Yeah. The pro- who we think is the protagonist just got murdered. This great plot of her her impulsively stealing $40,000 from her boss, then on the run to try to make a, a new life with her boyfriend that he doesn't even know about what's going on, the mystery of where she is, and she's dead. And it's like, wait, what's this movie? What's the rest of the movie going to be like? And then I love the sequence of watching. Uh, Norman Bates cleaned up the scene because it, it seemed like it was pretty easy to get away with murder, first of yeah, all. Yeah, Grissom from CSI ain't, ain't on the tail. No forensic yeah. evidence at all, Just obviously. a mop and water. Yeah, no one, no, <laughs> there's no science involved at all with investigation back then. Even, like, at this stage in the world, it's crazy. It's like in the... All they had was fingerprints. It's like crimes in, like, the 1880s. It's like, hmm, what could have happened? Let, I have an idea. Like, I have a hunch of what happened How here. are you going to find someone? If it's if it's not someone that, that knows the, the victim, then how are you going to find them? They were wearing boots let's look boots in england anyways let's look for boots sherlock holmes is fiction but you know it's 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 such a great moment because the whole pretty much entirety of this film hitchcock is manipulating the hell out of the audience to make you think like 
Norman Bates' mother is still alive. You know, we hear those screams from the house. We see her silhouette in the house. We see we see him carry her. We see him carry her. Yeah, yeah. down down to the fruit the fruit uh, basement or what's pantry. The fruit yeah the fruit pantry. Yeah. And we have situations where we we think she's alive, just the way that Norman acts and talks about her, and how shocked Norman is when he finds the body and he screams, "Mother, mother! Oh my God! Oh no! Oh no!" Actually, in that moment, in that dialogue, Alfred Hitchcock removed like all the bass frequencies to make him sound more childlike in that in those screams. Makes sense. But the audience, when you watch this for the first time, and, you, and hopefully if you watch it for the first time, you don't know the twist going in. You don't know that Norman Bates is the killer and his mother at the same time. You think the mother's alive the whole time, especially the way he's cleaning up this crime scene, how it's like it seems like, oh, she's done it again for like the fifth or sixth time. And even though he killed Marion, he's repulsed by the sight of the scene and how he acts like I have to do this again. Well, he's not acting. Well, well, I'm sorry. He's not acting. You're you're right. But like what's so fascinating is that he doesn't even know what happened. Yeah, I know. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. He's he's so. When he's not in control of the body, he's just in blackness. He's in shock because yeah. he fully thinks his mother is still alive. That's yeah. how crazy this guy is, how much of a psycho is. It's unbelievable. Is. Five it's so minutes amazing. ago, he killed this woman, and now he's Norman Bates, and he's acting like his mother's alive. His mother killed this woman, and I am in complete shock of it. And and based upon how he handles both the private detective and the others, it seems like he's had to deal with this before, not just killing someone, but dealing with the aftermath of the killing of you know, people coming to ask questions. I'm sure he it, it can be rare because of how isolated his motel is, but you know, that private detective seems to be very much involved in the case and I mean I'm sure he's getting paid well by that guy, but I'm sure he's had to deal with this before. But also because he's so childlike and immature, he is very poor at dealing with these situations in terms of being interrogated, especially with the private private detective lying to him. He lies to him like a child lies to some like an adult. You know what I mean? Um, and the way he gets it out of him is like, it's almost as though the detective have, has a sense of his Im- immaturity and he talks to him kind of like patronizing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he does act and talk like a kid. He's constantly fibbing. But we should probably talk about the other characters because just for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. let's talk about Sam Loomis first, who is Marion's boyfriend. And I'm telling you, played by John Gavin. This guy could have been Superman if he was born like three decades later because mm-hmm. literally throw, a, throw some spandex and a cape on this guy. Looks like Clark Kent. Looks like Superman. Um, he again, he's Marion's boyfriend, and because of his past divorce, he's paying alimony like crazy. He is basically broken. He doesn't think he deserves Marion, even though Marion wants to be with him. Marion wants to marry Sam, but Sam's completely hesitant to do it because he has nothing. And you know, he again, he's th- he thinks he's no good for Marion, and he, it provides motivation for Marion to take the money, like you said earlier. Exactly, so that's, it's vital to the character. Yeah, that pushes her impulsivity and stealing the money. But I I love the how the film opens with this like fifteen minute conversation with them. It feels like very realistic, and I I just love their dynamic, their back and forth. Again, we see the characters, the actors, um, barely clothed, which w- which was really uh, pushing the boundaries back then. I think it's a terrific way to open the film. Yeah. And then we have Lila Crane, who is Marion's sister. And obviously there's a, a sister-sibling re- resemblance for sure. They have very similar hair, which is why I think when Norman sees her for the first time, he's like, 
that looks kind of like the mm-hmm. woman I just killed. Yeah. And Lila just wants to find out what happened to her sister. So she's working with Sam Loomis to try to track down what happened to her, where she went, what happened at the Bates Motel, in addition to the private detective who's also being paid by Cassidy, the person who she stole the money from, is trying to track down the, everything that's gone on as well. Yeah, and Cassidy, Cassidy seems like he's excellent at his job. You know, but Cassidy's the 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 guy. I'm sorry, the detective. What's his name? The private investigator, Detective yeah. Milton Arbogast. 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 Uh, he's he's excellent at his job because he finds Bates Motel and he becomes very suspicious of Norman. Um, and the way he gets information from Norman, you know, he could tell that Norman's lying to him. And the way he like doesn't want to look at the photo, he's like, "Go on, look at it." And he seems to know, like, bef- like within a moment, that Norman has seen this girl before and seen this woman. And then he's obviously immediately goes to the house once he has an opportunity, which is actually when Norman kills him by pushing him off the stairs, which is an awesome shot, a great moment of the film, really terrific, and another great death scene in history. And then there's the sheriff, Al Chambers, who's just a terrible sheriff. <laughs> I mean, all he does is call on the phone, hey, Norman, did you kill anybody? Uh, no, sheriff didn't. Oh, Norman said he didn't, he didn't kill do it. it. Didn't do he it. Didn't do it. And then, but through sheriff, the sheriff, we learned that even though... Arbogast, when he called Sam and Marion to tell him that, like, I just talked to Bates. I'm going to go back there and talk to him again. He said that he saw the mother in the window and that there's a mother there and there's someone there. And then that's the point where Sheriff is like, Miss, Mrs. Bates, uh, Mrs. Bates, Norman's mother's been dead for 10 years. And who Then who's up there unless you're seeing ghosts? Because doesn't Sam see a figure in the window too or no? Sam doesn't see a figure yeah. now. Okay, never mind, because Sam doesn't... Marion Marion and Abergast see the figure. So Sam goes to the motel by himself, but he can't find Bates. Then he goes back to, to see Lila. Yeah, exactly. Then he and Lila go to the motel after Pander- Abergast hasn't called back uh, after a long period of time when he said he would. You're right. So, yeah. It's hey, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot going on in this movie. It's, it's, it's a pretty good plot, yeah. you know. There's yeah. a, lot, a lot of moving parts and everything. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that you know, obviously, we if you've seen this film, you know that Lila and and Sam they go to the Bates Motel, unconvinced by the sheriff's defense of him, and terrible job acting yeah. like they're not doing. Yeah, they're, on they're purpose. so suspicious. It's so it's they're like bad. going to their hotel room and they leave immediately. Yeah, yeah, and the way they're walking is like they're crouching walking. <laughs> But it's it's still it's an unbelievable twist. I think that this is the best twist ever because Marion she goes while Sam's distracting Norman she goes into the Bates home and she decides to go upstairs and goes into uh, Norman Bates's mother's bedroom and it's really great because she's looking around and it looks like it's lived in this room even though Mrs. Bates is supposed to be dead. You know she's looking around the area like someone definitely lives in this room and then she finds. The imprint, the body imprint in the bed, uh, which is so disturbing. It's like then you that when you see that, it's like oh my god, taxidermy. What? Then it's beginning to make sense. And then she goes into the basement when Norman, um, when she sees Norman running out the um, out the window, she goes down into the basement and finds the stuffed corpse of Mrs. Bates, which is zombie like and mummified like, and 
absolutely horrifying. I think what's even more interesting is after she leaves Mrs. Bates' bedroom, she then goes into Norman's bedroom. Oh, and yeah. what's so interesting about Norman's bedroom is it looks like a child's room. He's got stuffed animals, and, and you can assume— A child's bed. She assumes that Mrs. Norman Bates' mother is alive in the house somewhere, and this is Norman's room? Norman's an adult. He's like 25, 30 years old, and this is this is his bedroom with all these toys, these stuffed—these clearly look like homemade stuffed animals that maybe his mm-hmm. mother made for him because— again they lived as if they were the only two people on the planet so uh-huh. it's such an odd Freudian relationship obviously and theme in the film in a little child little uh, woman, uh, child's bed like little tiny bed frame yeah exactly you can assume that he probably sleeps in that yeah but but and I, and I would say it could be the scariest part of the film even scarier than the shower scene is when after the reveal of Mrs. of Mrs. Bates corpse and then Lila turns around and then Norman Burst through the door with a giant crazed smile on his face, holding the knife like a maniac. And with the music, those high-pitched uh, strings, that gets me every time. That's still terrifying. Yes, it's horrifying. And obviously, thank goodness, Sam Loomis saves her. Superman Last moment. And, you know, we find out officially that Norman Bates was pretending to— what thinks he's his mother, and at this point— Norman's mother has fully taken over the body of Norman Bates. He'll never be Norman Bates again. From now on, he's Mrs. Bates internally. Yeah, and that great in- interior um, dialogue of Mrs. Bates inside of Norman's head is just really terrific and revealing of the character where she's like, I'm not going to, I'm not even going to swat that fly. They won't, they'll look at me and be like, oh, she would, she's just a little old lady. She wouldn't hurt a fly. Yeah, and their internal dialogue is super fascinating because she's talking about how, like, she's, like, finally going to been trying to tell people about how bad of a boy Norman is. <laughs> and, like, it's a, it's about time they put him away. I've been saying, I've been wanting to put him away for years now. He's out of control and everything like that. So it's interesting. It's kind of the same conversation that, um, Marion has it in her head when she's speaking for Cassidy. Yeah. It's very interesting. And it, it reminds you, I feel like this was definitely inspirational for M. Night Shyamalan's movie Split. Yeah, the probably. Split personality for sure. Yeah, or any split personality film. You know, yeah. there's a lot of them. Yeah, so many. And, you know, unfortunately, you could maybe say for Anthony Perkins and even Janet Lee, they were typecast and stereotype cast for the rest of their careers, especially Anthony Perkins. He played a lot of villains, a lot of deranged, mentally deranged characters. A lot of psycho, psycho sequels. Yeah, and yeah, he did two psycho sequels. He did yeah. Psycho 2 and Psycho 3. I don't know how you do a third one. The second one's crazy enough. And like, that came how out, do you, Would that come out in 1980? He was in his 40s. Yeah. 1983 that came yeah. out. Um but, I mean, he had a, still had a very solid career. It's not like he didn't work anymore. He got an Oscar nomination in 1957 before this in Friendly Persuasion. But, I mean, he worked with a ton of great directors and actors. He worked with Orson Welles four or five times, I believe, after this came out. He worked – he was he, he was even in movies with, like, Paul Newman, Sophie Loren. He was in a couple movies with – He was just never a lead. Yeah, he yeah. was Sophie Loren's first kiss in America in an American film. He was also one of the huge cast – one of the members in the original Murder on the Orient Express. Mm-hmm. So he was still in a lot of really good movies working with great directors. But, yeah, he just typecast as a villain. But he also, like, in Mur- Murder on the Orient Express, he plays the assistant of the businessman, and he is very – uh, you know, nervous and kind of similar in this film. Not like crazy, but just like uh, um, uncomfortable around other people and just very shy as well. So mm-hmm. I think he had that natural sh- uh, persona of being shy naturally, which is maybe also what 
led to his typecasting as well. Yeah, Anthony Perkins was also a singer, and he actually released three pop music album albums and several singles in 1957 and 1958. One of them was number 24 on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1957. How I Killed My Mother. Moonlight Swim. <laughs> <laughs> then after buying out his contract with Paramount, he, which is after Psycho, he moved to France, began making a lot of European films, the first of which was Goodbye Again with Ingrid Bergman. Oh, wow. That's crazy. So he had a very solid career. I think people think like, oh, he never worked again. He worked plenty. He was just never the, a big lead actor. But I mean, still, Janet Lee was also typecast and stereotyped with the same kind of roles as well. But both of them have been quoted saying that, like, I wouldn't have changed a thing if I'm at least remembered for something. At least it's something as groundbreaking, as important, and big of a film as Psycho. Beats being a plumber. <laughs> All right, Bill Belichick. <laughs> but yeah, I adore this film. It's one of my favorites, and it really is one of Hitchcock's best films it's, and it's really unbelievable. And as we all know, a boy's best friend is his mother. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Always. I, don't know, I, don't know. I think my favorite line of this movie is when uh, he, he says, she may have fooled me, but she didn't fool my mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. That makes me crack he up. Sa he says it to Sam. It's like, oh, my God, this guy's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Want to move on to some trivia? Let's I'm, do it. All right. I said a bunch during the episode. So, but so did I. More. Let's see. Okay, Walt Disney refused to allow Sir Alfred Hitchcock to film a movie at Disneyland in the early 1960s because Hitchcock made that disgusting movie, Psycho. In Robert Block's novel, Psycho, Norman Bates is short, fat, older, and very dislikable. It was Sir Alfred Hitchcock's idea, and he decided to have him be young, handsome, and sympathetic. Norman is also more of a main character in the novel. The story opens with him and Mother fighting, rather than following Marion from the start. That's great the way it worked out, then. After this movie's release, Hitchcock revealed, received an angry letter from the father of a girl who refused to have a bath after seeing Diabolique, which was a, a film which, in which a, a woman was killed in a bathtub, and now refused to shower after seeing this movie. Hitchcock sent a note back to the man simply saying, Send her to the dry cleaners. <laughs> when Alfred Hitchcock was off due to illness, the crew shot the sequence of Arbogast inside the house going up the stairs. When Hitchcock saw the footage, he complimented those responsible but said the sequence had to be reshot. Their version made it appear as if Arbogast was going up the stairs to commit a murder. Alfred Hitchcock reshot the sequence. We've actually seen the Bates, Bates, Ho the Bates house. It's at Universal Studios on their lot. And uh, it's, it's visible on their tour. It's always uh, a part of that. And sometimes when the bus stops outside of the Bates house, every once in a while they have an actor playing Norman Bates holding a knife walking around. Oh, it's every single time. Yeah, oh, it's so Th fun. That's someone's job. <laughs> <laughs> the official trailer for Cycle ran for over six minutes and 30 seconds, the longest trailer ever. And that wraps our episode on Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Thank you so much for tuning into this epic, iconic classic horror film really hope you enjoy it as much as we do it's one of the best of all time be sure to become a patron at patreon.com slash raiders of the lost podcast take care everyone raiders of the lost podcast is a mirror image production sound mixing done by jacob kosler opening music by chase jackson Offer deadline on Oak Street, aisle three. Welcome to the housing market. I'm with Redfin, and I'm here to help. I need to sell my house. Great. Redfin charges a 1% listing fee when you buy and sell with us, which is more than half off the usual fee and saves you an average of $8,400. Oh, wow. Is that all? Uh, yep. 
I'm kidding. You had me at 1%. Want to win? Sell with Redfin. It's real estate done right. Bidding war at the offer's counter in five minutes. Average savings is Redfin refund plus 1% listing fee. Subject to minimums. Not available in all areas. Learn more at redfin.com. Experience an epic summer at Busch Gardens Williamsburg with world-class rides, shows, exciting animal encounters, and all-new thrills on Pantheon, the world's fastest multi-launch coaster. Come early and stay late during summer celebration. Now through August 14th, see the stars of America's Got Talent, live concerts, and fireworks every weekend. There's always more to do at the world's most beautiful theme park, Busch Gardens Williamsburg. Save up to 50% on tickets, fun cards, and memberships during our 4th of July sale. Restrictions apply.